Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. Super great to be with you again this week. I hope each of you are doing well. Well, in this episode today, we're going to look at another text that is not in Romans, but one that complements our discussions that we've had so far about Romans. And I'm talking about Philippians. So Philippians was written by Paul as well. And there are some things that he says in Philippians that I think will be very helpful for each of us as we think deeply about some of the arguments that we've been exploring that Paul has been making, not least in Romans 3. So last week we looked at Romans 3, and I thought maybe this week we would look at Philippians chapter 2 because um, I think Rome, I think the last episode could stand on its own and we could jump straight into Romans 4, but there are some things that we probably could look at even further here in Philippians and... Um, will actually end up back in Isaiah like we were last week too. Because anyway, it's going to add some muscle to our skeleton that we're building here, I think. I think that's a good way to put it. And um, yeah, so anyway, I think think it'll be helpful. Um, So the thing about Romans is that it's a complex book. It's a book that is, um, you know, a million feet wide and in a million feet deep. It's, you know, it's a book that you can spend the rest of your life exploring and looking into and praying through and thinking about and preaching and writing about. I mean, the list goes on. Romans is one of those books. And so one thing that, um, and and, and that's a blessing, I think, because, um, I mean, I wrote a book on Romans and uh, there are millions of other books in Romans. And the, the thing about Romans, though, is that if you're not careful, you'll end up spending all your time there and you'll forget that there are other books of the Bible, <laughs> right? And um, a lot of Pauline scholars, uh, you know, do that sometimes, uh, not intentionally, of course, but sometimes we just get pigeonholed or siloed into one little section, our own little section, and we forget the other things. Well, I think today's episode is going to help push back against that and and sort of help us to think broadly with respect to Romans, because I don't want us to think that, you know, Romans is the... Um, you know, the most important book in the in the New Testament. Because I, I don't think that would be fair to Paul or fair to what Paul is trying to do in Romans. Um I, I think there are I think there are other things all throughout scripture that we need to have a good grasp of so that we can appreciate Romans all the more. And that means we need to we need to engage the book of Romans uh, through dialogue with those other texts. Anyway, I hope all that makes sense and I think that today we'll see how that could make sense. Because I think what we'll see here is how this how some of the themes that we've talked about in Romans three this last week, um, you know they weren't just you know uh, you know quick little thoughts that Paul had um, as he was jotting down his letter to um, to the church at Rome. Um, no, the, these are uh, these are things that uh, Paul has immersed himself in thoroughly, such that you know they're on his mind all the time, even when he's you know pinning a letter to the church at Philippi. Um, I think I think Paul has done a lot of thinking and a lot of praying and a lot and he's had a lot of experiences that um, that 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 really have formed his his theology in a sense, right? And so, anyway, we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter two today and and see how some of these similar themes uh, come up and and how, by the way, and 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 how Paul has conceived of this um, th- this concept of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ 
and and the way that fits into the larger story of of Israel, specifically with respect to Isaiah's servant. So you remember from last week, we talked about Isaiah's servant. We looked at several texts like Isaiah 41, 42, and I think uh, Isaiah 49. And so um, those were texts that talked about the servant, the servant motif, uh, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna see more of that in Philippians, and as a result, we'll see a, a, a great picture that Paul has painted, and that is, I think, the key to his entire theology. Okay, so just a brief recap. In the last episode, we talked about Romans 3, of course, and in that text, we looked at the this phrase, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This, uh, you know, comes in uh, Romans 3, uh, verses 20, 21, 22, and, and those are three very important pers- uh, verses in Romans 3. But anyway, we talked about how... Um, how the how, how God's own faithfulness was revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. Okay, and if you don't quite remember that, maybe maybe peruse through the transcript or um, uh, maybe go back and listen to it because I think I think Romans three was a very pivotal uh, uh, chapter and in, in, in part of our pivotal or a, a very pivotal commentary, I guess, that we're working through. Uh, and, and other comments that we're making uh, are very pivotal, I think, in the larger scheme of things. But anyway, um, yeah, so the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is the way that God showed his faithfulness to Israel and to the world. Now, why was that important? Okay, well, you'll remember, because in, in the first part of Romans 3, Paul has this dilemma, like he's got this conundrum. Okay, if Israel has proven to be unfaithful to their, uh, you know, their mandate to be a light to the nations— and if God has promised that he would use the children of Abraham, Israel, to rescue the world, but if Israel isn't uh, usable, then what is God going to do? I mean, God's got a problem on his hands because be- because he promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would use Abraham's family to rescue the world. And God is no liar, so that means if he's promised something, he'll do it. And so he will use Abraham. But again, the catch is Abraham's family cannot be used because... I mean, how can they rescue the world? They need to be rescued themselves. I mean, they are just as sinful as the rest of the world. So for Paul, God's got a problem on his hands in a sense. Now, okay, God doesn't think there's a problem because God always had a way, always had a plan. But from an earthly perspective, it seems like a dilemma. What is God going to do? You know, he can't lie. He can't go back on his promise. So he has to use Israel. But how? How is he going to use Israel? And so Paul asked this question at the beginning of Romans 3, you know, does the unfaithfulness of Israel nullify or negate the faithfulness of God? And and Paul says, by no means, absolutely not. God will be faithful. Even though if every person were a liar, God will still prove to be faithful. God will always be righteous. And we talked about how the faithfulness of God and the righteousness of God, of God were equated. Okay, so for Paul... God's righteousness is his faithfulness to the covenant. Like God is righteous because he's faithful to the covenant. They go hand in hand and they're quite synonymous in Romans chapter three, especially when you compare verses three and five together, they kind of parallel each other. Um, so yeah, uh, anyway, um, so so we, we talked about that and we talked about Israel's vocation. Like if Israel is unfaithful, what are they unfaithful uh, two. I mean, what, what are they unfaithful with? Well, they're unfaithful with the vocation that they've been given. Now, this is where the concept of election has come in. God has elected Israel in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. 
He's elected the family of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. He, Of course, they are elected to be blessed, but they are elected to be a blessing to the non-elect, to the nations. And that is why you have this major theme, a theme in uh, uh, throughout Scripture, specifically in Isaiah, where Israel is called a light to the nations. Okay, Israel is God's servant. I mean, that's the language that Isaiah uses. As God's servant, Israel is called to be a light to the nations, to show the world how to live, to be a holy example for all to see. Yeah, and that didn't work out, did it? <laughs> um, Israel has has failed, and of course. We dare not say this with a hypocritical eye. I mean, none of us, not you, not me, nobody is faithful. We've not been faithful. We have been unfaithful. There is none who are righteous, not even one, says Paul. So we can't look at each other and say, man, you really messed up. No, we can look at, we can look at ourselves and say, we have messed up. Okay, Israel has messed up as, as well, and, and they were called to be that blessing. That was their vocation. To, to, you know, they were the rescue plan for the world. The world has messed up. Read Genesis 3 through 11. And Israel um, has, has been called to rescue them, Genesis 12. And of course, we looked at Isaiah, who picked up on this theme very much, that you know, Israel is there called um, God's servant. So Isaiah has these servant songs. There's this strong motif, this theme all throughout Isaiah that um, is all about this mysterious servant. But it's really not that mysterious, right? We looked at texts last week that showed quite clearly that that the servant is defined. The servant is Israel. Israel is the servant. And yet throughout Isaiah, there are sections where Isaiah, um, though he does call the servant Israel, He also says the servant is someone who's going to rescue Israel. So the servant must be Israel, but it's an Israelite who is different from the rest of Israel, who will be capable of rescuing Israel. And then as a result, um, rescue the world, rescue the nations and be a light to the nations. And we talked quite um, emphatically about that. And we mentioned how Jesus himself is is the servant that Isaiah is talking about. Now, we look at that retrospectively, of course, and quite rightly. Jesus has been crucified. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53. He has been resurrected, um, you know, uh, and um, and has shown himself to be the divine son of God. Okay? And, um, but yeah, Jesus is Isaiah's servant. Um, and, and that's why we looked at some passages in Matthew's gospel where um, it was fascinating, really, right? Where Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel. He, you know, he, he and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt and they go back in Matthew chapter two. Uh, in Matthew chapter two, Matthew says, that was to f- fulfill what the prophet said, that out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, so there Jesus is reenacting the Exodus. He's also reenacting entrance into the promised land through his baptism in the Jordan River, which interestingly, was to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. And that did not mean that Jesus needed his sins washed away, okay? No, no, no. Baptism is uh, there for Jesus, um, uh, you know, a a reenactment of Israel's entry into the promised land. Well, Jesus also spent 40 days in, in a wilderness being tempted by the enemy. Interestingly enough, those temptations paralleled the temptations that that Israel went through in their 40-year wilderness journeys, okay? And uh, the difference being, though, is that uh, Jesus comes out of his wilderness temptations 
righteous and holy and having defeated the enemy. Unfortunately, Israel in the Old Testament could not say that because Israel succumbed to her temptations, a lot of them, many of them, to her detriment, right? And um, but, but Jesus is fulfilling them. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he's on a mountain reenacting the story of Moses and the giving of the law to Israel. There again, Jesus is the New Testament's lawgiver, and he is showing us the way. He is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be a light to the nations. We are a city on a hill, a light to all, for all to see. And we are a Beatitudes people. We are a meek people. We are supposed to be a merciful people. We are supposed to be a people um, who are pure in heart and so forth. He is giving us kingdom ethics. So you have in all of that, Jesus reenacting the story of Israel. Now, why did he do that? Well, because God has to use Israel to rescue the world. Why? Well, because he promised Abraham. Well, why didn't he use Abraham's family? Well, because they were unusable due to their sin. And yet, God still found a way to use them through the faithful Israelite Jesus. See, here's the thing. Salvation is found only in Israel. Salvation belongs to Israel. Go read John chapter 4 when Jesus says uh, that uh, salvation belongs to um, the family of Abraham. And yet, it's not. It, it does belong to Israel, but it's for the world through Israel. That's a very important motif. That is the Genesis 11:12 motif that I talked about. Genesis 11, you know the story of Tower of Babel, how um, the nations are fractured and broken. In Genesis 12, God has the repair plan put in place. The nations will be blessed through who? The family of Abraham, through Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, so that is where we were last week. And we have been building toward that as we look through Romans 1 and 2. And finally, into chapter 3, Paul wants to ask, how is God going to show himself to be faithful to the covenant? How is God going to make it all work? Well, that is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God, God's righteousness is through, it is revealed through Jesus' own faithfulness. Because Jesus is the servant. So let's talk a little bit more about that servant, that servant motif. And this brings us to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look specifically at verses 5 through 11, which is traditionally known as the Christ hymn. Okay, but before we get to verses 5, I want us to uh, start with verse 1, where Paul um, introduces the substance of his discussion here. So I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, and I'll go through uh, verse 4. Paul says this, he says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And that right there is a very important text, is it not? Um, okay, it, it's one of those texts that I think every church probably needs to, to consider and listen to, every Christian needs to heed. Um, and, 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 the, and the context here seems to be that at the church at Philippi, there was some disagreements going on and uh, probably some schismatic sort of uh, 
things happening. I mean, this isn't just little disagreements. This is probably something pretty big. And so Paul feels the need to address this whole idea of unity within the church. Now, he says here in verse 2, he says, be of the same mind, having the same love. Um, Now, it's important that Paul is talking about unity here. He is not talking about uniformity. Okay, he's the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in Paul um, is it, are we commanded to be uh, in uniform agreement with one another, meaning you're allowed to disagree with me and I'm allowed to disagree with you. We can agree to disagree. Christians are part of a big family and as, as members of a big family, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have different perspectives. We're going to have different ideas and so forth. Um, and uh, And that's okay. I mean, there's beauty in diversity. But what Paul is saying is that we need unity. Now, unity is different than uniformity because uniformity means that we all have to think alike, exactly alike. Unity means that we can have different thoughts about things and different ideas, but we're nonetheless going to be together in the, in the mission. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's like, look, come together in unity, okay? Come together in, in, even in maybe disagreements. Work those out and uh, get a game plan in place so that you're not beating each other up. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's huge, is it not, in today's church? Um, and let me, let me just stop here for just a moment. You know, we, we talk about theology. I love theology. I love digging deep. I love all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, we need to realize that theology, at least for Paul and the New Testament writer, as, a, as the New Testament itself as a whole, it's all practical. There's all always there's always practical bearings um, that um, these these texts are geared toward, and I think I think we need to never miss that. Okay, this is not ivory tower stuff. This is everyday stuff. This is real world living, and uh, I just don't want us to miss that. I don't, you know, I I don't I don't, I don't want to teach scripture in a way that has no application. Because I think when you try to teach scripture abstractly and you forget the the application part, then I think you're neglecting the understanding part. You know, I'm, I've been influenced by this German philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer, Hans Georg Gadamer, and, um, and he, he has this whole philosophical system. It's in his book, the, uh, it's in his book called Truth and Method. Anyway, he says basically that application and understanding, uh, they're, they're, those are just the same thing. It's one process. In other words, you don't understand something until it's being applied and lived out. And I think that's a really good way of understanding the concept of understanding, is that you really don't understand something unless it becomes part of your life and it becomes part of your praxis, right? Um, you know, we talk about orthodoxy, orthodox right Christian belief, but we also, need to talk, we also need to talk about orthopraxy, like right living, because they go together. Anyway, so you see that here in Paul for sure. Um, yeah, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, you know, in humility, regard others better than yourselves. Don't look out for yourself, look out for other people. This is Christianity 101. And we need to be reminded of those sorts of things. Now, now, Paul is not content to leave it there. He he wants to give us something concrete to walk upon. He wants to give us a foundation for living that sort of life. And as a result, he points us to Jesus. Jesus is someone who was very humble, who was full of love, who was full of compassion and other-centeredness. He was a very selfless person. He is a very selfless person. 
And so it makes sense that Paul would point us to Jesus. So basically in verses 5 through 11, that's what he does. He points us to Jesus. So here's what he said. Uh, or here's what Paul says. Verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend or every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so this is the Christ hymn. This is what I mentioned earlier. The Christ hymn has um, a little bit of rhythm and rhyme to it. It's, it's, it was probably a song that was sung. You know, there is debate about whether Paul actually wrote this part or he's just, you know, quoting it because it was part of early Christian liturgy, uh, part of early Christian worship or something, or, you know, who knows. Um, e- either way, whether Paul wrote this or he's, quote, you know, he's quoting it and using it in his letter here, it's clear that Paul agrees with it, <laughs> right? And that's why he's, um, that's why he's quoting it. Um, but I suspect that, I don't know, maybe, maybe Paul actually wrote this. Maybe, maybe this is his, um, um, creation, if you will. Uh, it would make sense to me. Uh, you know, there's, there's debate about all this, of course, but I don't, I don't want to get into much of that. Um, but I, I don't, I want to get to, um, I, I want to dive more into this text, um, with the time that we have left because, it's so important. It's, I mean, it's immensely important. If we want to, if we want to understand Paul's worldview, if we want to understand his theology, his Christology, if we want to, if we want to understand what Paul was doing in Romans chapter three, I think this might help. This is, uh, consider, consider this text, a footnote to the stuff in Romans three that we talked about. Okay. This is an addendum, if, if you will, uh, of all of that discussion. So, um, yeah, let's let's dive into this and go through it line by line. So we pick up again at verse five. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that was verse five. And so, what sort of mindset is Paul talking about? He's not, he's saying let this mindset dwell in you. Okay, uh, let this way of living dwell in you. The way of living, the mindset of Jesus. That is how you should be. That's that you should think like Jesus thought. You should live like Jesus lives. And then in verse six, we pick up on uh, more details about the way Jesus lived. Jesus, verse six, Jesus was someone who was in the form of God and did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or held on to in a in an ex- exploitive sort of way or in a uh, you know in a way of uh, that, that is that is not other centeredness, if you will. I think that might be a good way to put it. Um, all, all Paul is saying here is that Jesus is equal with God. He's fully divine, right? He is, he's, um, uh, you know, this is slightly anachronistic here, but, it, but I think Paul would certainly agree with it. Um, it's like the, you know, the Christian creed that, um, that Jesus is very God, a very God, like he is completely God. He's not you know, 100% God and halfway man, though, I mean, he is fully man, fully human, and fully divine, okay? 
And of course, later Christian tradition is going to come out and parse all of that out very beautifully, I, I, I would say, and, and help us make sense of how that's possible. Um, so, yeah, this past week and, and more, I've been reading Thomas Aquinas on the Incarnation. It's been fascinating. I, I highly recommend you know, checking out Thomas Aquinas' uh, uh, um, sec- uh, writings on the Incarnation. It's been, it's been really fun to, to get into that. I don't, I don't get into theology proper much. I'm more of a biblical studies guy, but I, I find myself wading into theology quite a bit. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, Jesus is someone who, as God, has all the prerogatives of God, all of the, you know, he enjoys the glory, the, the, the benefits of godness, if you will. And yet, um, he is someone who empties himself nonetheless. So verse seven, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay. So that was, um, you know, verses seven and eight. In other words, that Jesus as God is someone who did not hold on to his throne and the divine prerogatives thereof um, in a way that is selfish, in a way that was not other-centered, and, and if that makes sense. Um, and, and in other words, what this means is that he became human. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that when Jesus became human, that he ceased to be God. That is not what he's saying. I mean, I know that some heresies would say something like that, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that this God, Jesus himself, um, was willing to, you know, empty himself, to pour out himself for others. I mean, think of think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus tells his disciples, look, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve and to give myself to give myself as a ransom for many people. Okay. That that's fascinating. Like God did not come to be served but to serve others. And, and Jesus is someone who washes feet. He is someone who in Philippians 2 here becomes obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, which for us that last line there, even death on a cross kind of loses its original significance because today the cross is a piece of jewelry. The cross is decoration. But back then in the first century, the cross was a, not only, you know, a place of, of gruesome execution, but it was a place of shame. It was a place of defeat, moral and political, the whole, the whole thing. It was, it was a, a place of, of scorn. And so it was a place of dishonor. So to be crucified by Rome would have been, uh, you know, a, a complete humiliation, right? It's what Rome did to to her worst enemies, okay? And, and, and so here you have God Almighty, picture this, God Almighty, full of glory and splendor, and yet nonetheless willing to lay down his life for you and for me, for all. And that, that's shocking. And, you know, I mean, it, it alters our conception of all that we've been told about God. You know, well, maybe you grew up in an, in an environment that got God right, right? You knew God was love and God was kind and compassionate. But let's face it, many people grow up in an environment where they hear that God is actually quite vicious and maybe even bloodthirsty and angry all the time, okay? And, and, and people who grow up in those worlds, those with, with that mindset, 
let me just let me just say like that's not the mindset of the gospel that's not the mindset of Jesus that's not the mindset of God that's a false uh, representation of God it's a misrepresentation of who God is God I've said this before on the podcast but it's worth repeating God is not you know someone whose default mode is anger okay he, he, no uh, he he's someone who has a default mode of mercy he does get angry I mean I mean anybody who you know, has uh, love. <laughs> Anybody who is loving will get angry because, I mean, how can you look at people you love getting hurt and not be angry about that? God is God is someone who gets angry, but it's not his default mode is not anger, in the sense that he's always looking for you to go wrong, right? No, um, God is always looking for ways to uh, to rescue us, and and of course, from all eternity past, he's always had the way picked out. Of course you know, God didn't have trouble figuring that one out. But my point is that God always has our best intentions in mind. If, if we will get on with the program, if we will get on board with what he's doing, the point here is that God Almighty was willing to, to chain himself to an instrument of shame, i.e. the cross. Okay, now Jesus um, was obedient to do that and he was vindicated in the end. Um, we know he was vindicated through his resurrection. Uh, his resurrection showed him to be who he said he was all along. Because let's face it, if you can raise yourself from the dead, well, you can pretty much do whatever you want, right? And so Jesus has been vindicated from, you know, from from the shame of the cross. So could you imagine people seeing Jesus? Maybe they didn't know who he was or maybe knew him uh, peripherally, but seeing Jesus on the cross, you would immediately think, oh, there's another criminal. After all, he's tied up between two criminals here. And so Jesus's vindication would have shown him, no, 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 I, I am a different sort of person. I am righteous. I have divine favor. I have conquered. I have even conquered the conqueror. (laughs) Okay. And so the resurrection has vindicated Jesus. And that's why in verse nine, it says, therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So Jesus's vindication comes through his exaltation, namely his resurrection, and of course his ascension, his ascension to the throne. Um, and so he he has um, come from heaven and he has gone back to heaven and has assumed his throne such that he is overseeing um, the world and he he is ruling. He is ruling and reigning. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And that's why he can call us out to go into the world as his emissaries and and spread the good news of how he is rescuing the world. Now, since Jesus has been given the name above every name, that means that everybody comes to him in worship. Everybody should and is called to come to him in worship, that is. And so that's why it says, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend or bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so this is a very important text because I think this is where we see um, the heart of Paul's theology. Okay, he now now Paul is a good Jew. He's a monotheist, and and what that means is that there is one Creator, and that is Yahweh. Of course, I mean the Psalms and other texts in the Old Testament do speak of gods. You might say little G O D S. Um, these are you know, uh, sub-deities, as it were. 
um, you know, they're not equal to Yahweh in the sense that Yahweh um, is their creator. Um, but, but so the point here is that, uh, the, the, what I'm trying to say is that Paul is a monotheist. He believes that Yahweh is unique. He is the most high God. He is the God of gods. And, um, and here in this text though, we see that Paul's monotheism, his Jewish monotheism is being reconstrued or reconfigured around his Christology. Okay. Um, Paul's conception of God is, is essentially Christocentric, okay, or Christological. Now, how can I say that? Where do I get that here in verses 9, 10, 11? Um, well, it's actually pretty interesting because here in this text, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45, verse 23, okay? So, he has quoted from that text, and, and I'm going to read uh, that, that verse so we can kind of get a sense of what's going on here. And I'm going to actually read uh, starting at um, verse 22. It says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So this is Isaiah 45 verses 22 and 23. So this in context is talking about Yahweh. Yahweh, it is to Yahweh that every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear or pledge allegiance. Um, now, that sounds very familiar because we just read it in Philippians chapter 2. So I'll go back to Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 10, 11. It says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, this, what Paul has essentially done here is he's taken a Yahweh text and he's applied it to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Is, he, is Paul thinking in his mind, okay, back in the day this was applied to Yahweh, but now we're going to apply it to this man named Jesus. I don't think that captures what Paul is doing. Okay, I don't think he's, he's doing that at all. I think what he's doing is, is he's understanding the concept of Yahweh itself in light of his Christology, in light of what he believes about Jesus's resurrection and life and ministry, he's he's re-understanding or reinterpreting, I guess you can say, um, this Yahweh text and saying, yep, that's Jesus. So he's not saying, you know, previously we worshiped Yahweh, now we're going to worship this Jesus figure. No, no, no. I mean, again, Paul is a devoted monotheist. Only Yahweh is someone who's worthy of worship. But he's understanding Yahweh in light of Jesus, the Messiah, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, on theological grounds and uh, scriptural grounds, so or or um, uh, storied grounds. So let me explain that. On theological grounds, we know from the creeds that that you might be familiar with. So I'm thinking of like the Nicene Creed, uh, for example, um, and and all the Christological deliberations and the Trinitarian um, deliberations in early Christian history, we know that this, this idea of Jesus being equal um, with the Father with respect to divinity, right? That, that there's only one God, but there are three persons in the one God, in the Godhead. Um, so we, we know how that works theologically. Again, go read the creeds and go back to read up on those Christological um, uh, controversies and Trinitarian debates. You might read Gregory of Nyssa, um, for example, on, 
on uh, the Trinity and, uh, and there's a host of others as well. And on the incarnation, like I said, go, go read Thomas Aquinas. Um, but anyway, um, so, so theologically the church has made sense of that and has done a pretty good job of, of that, no doubt. Um, and, and yeah, it makes sense to me. I'm, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a creedal person. I'm, I mean, I'm a Christian, so I'm, I'm someone who ad- adheres to the creeds and, uh, um, and I think they, the creeds have done a, a, a good job in understanding, um, these, um, uh, these, these mysteries anyway. Um, so you have that, but you also have the storied aspect of all this, right? You know, just like we've been talking about in Romans chapter three, it is through the 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 righteous. The, it is through the faithfulness of Jesus that the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's there's this essential unity between God's righteousness and Jesus's faithfulness that we see in Romans three. And Paul is presenting even there um, a way for us to understand the unity uh, of of the Son of God and the Father. Um, he doesn't go into the language there, but it's very consistent with that Trinitarian idea in Romans 3. So how is God going to be faithful? How is God going to act? How is God going to work? How is God going to you know, fulfill the covenant he made with Abraham? Through the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of God is, is through the faithfulness of Jesus. And, and I think you see that very well here um, in that text. So this is what I would call the storied aspect of it all. Because again, Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel, and and and, and Jesus um, is 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 the outworking of the faithfulness of God the Father, right? So there's this there's this whole story that's being told from Genesis eleven twelve to Isaiah, to Romans chapter three, um, uh, where God is fleshing out His story through the person of Jesus Christ. So it's super cool there to think of it. So you have the storied aspect, and you have the theological aspect. And which all of that sort of makes sense of how Paul could um, could quote this text and quote it Christologically. It is interesting when you go back to Isaiah chapter forty five, and uh, you read the surrounding context. So I, I read a moment ago from uh, Isaiah forty five twenty two and twenty three, where Yahweh says, "I am God; there is no other, and by myself I have sworn." Uh, you know, and he, and it says to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So he's saying, there's nobody like me. I am the one God. Okay. Again, classic Jewish monotheism. And he's saying to me, and we can read that there as saying only to me shall a knee bow and every tongue shall confess. And elsewhere, if you read in uh, the, just the verse prior to that, he said, um, he says this, he says, um, there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is no one besides me. Okay, so you have a very strict Jewish monotheism all throughout Isaiah 45. No doubt Paul was very familiar with that. You also get this in, in uh, uh, verse 5 of Isaiah 45. He says, I am Yahweh and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Um, you Again, you, all throughout here that you, you get this very strong monotheistic idea that only Yahweh is worthy of worship. Only Yahweh is worthy of bending the knee uh, to, to and, and and swearing allegiance to. And no doubt Paul, as a good Jewish monotheist, he would have known these texts. I mean, for crying out loud, he quotes one of these texts. So he knows Isaiah 45 quite well, okay? And, and that's why it's all the more fascinating that he will take a text and apply it to Jesus. So the question that we need to ask here is, okay, does Paul think that there is someone other than Yahweh who is worthy of worship? And the answer, of course, is no. 
that Jesus is so unified with Yahweh that he can't conceive of Yahweh without thinking of Jesus, and he cannot think of Jesus without thinking of Yahweh. There's a and there's a plurality there that we can acknowledge, you know, a plurality of persons we could say, you know, can, which is consistent with the Trinitarian formula. Um, but um, but there's an essential unity there that is uh, still nonetheless upheld. So it's a triunity, it's Trinity. Okay, of course we haven't talked about the Holy Spirit here, but you know that's for another conversation. But here, you know, this this idea is very important. And of course, I I would recommend to everybody, and I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with this, but I would highly recommend checking out the work of uh, uh, Mike Heiser, Doctor Mike Heiser. You know, he's written on this kind of stuff before, um, two powers in heaven idea and all of that. All of that's very consistent with what I'm saying here. I think uh, there's a lot of, of, uh, of uh, you know, similarities in what I'm saying here. I'm just kind of looking at it from a different angle. Namely, I'm looking at it through Paul's interpretive lens because I'm, I'm getting all of this simply by paying attention to the way that Paul interprets the Old Testament. I love reading Paul read scripture. That's just what I love to do. And in here, I'm, I'm reading Paul, read scripture in a way that is Christological, in a way that's Christocentric, okay? And I think that's that's super, super important. And here's why that's important. Here's why that is essential to understanding Romans chapter 3. You remember all I said at the beginning of this episode and what I said in the last episode about Isaiah and the servant, how for Isaiah, the servant is Israel, and yet the servant is also someone who rescues Israel so that the world can be rescued. Well, this is very interesting in light of our discussion just now on Philippians 2 and Paul's exegesis and interpretation of Isaiah. Here's why all that is important and how it all comes together. We have to ask ourselves, who is the servant of Isaiah? Well, it's Israel. It's also Jesus. And as it turns out, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the servant. Yahweh is the one who rescues the world. And this is a beautiful uh, you know, conclusion to our discussion that started last week in Romans chapter 3, that, um, that God himself is, is the only Savior. God himself is the only one who can rescue any of us, Right. Um, if, if God is going to use a human being to rescue the world, it will have to be a human being who is fully divine, okay? And as it turns out, that is Jesus, and that is how God's righteousness is revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the servant figure, and Jesus is the one who, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, who is worthy of the worship that belongs only to Yahweh. And I think all of this just fits together like hand in glove. It helps us to see Paul's worldview. It helps us to see Paul's theological commitments. It helps us also to see his interpretive activity, the way he interprets scripture. Okay, so let's go there for just a moment. How does Paul interpret scripture? Well, here at least we see that he interprets it Christologically. Okay, and and he's not imposing on the text of the Old Testament in a unilateral sort of way. No, he's engaging the text in a dialogical sort of way. Okay, he is someone, Paul is someone who respects the original horizon of understanding of the Old Testament text. He respects its 
its world, its context, okay? And yet he wants it to speak afresh in in light of what God has done through Jesus Christ. So for Paul, you see this idea of dialogue. I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I'll say it again, though, because I think it's worth worth uh, considering again even here, is that for Paul, the Old Testament is uh, is a text that he converses with. The Old Testament is an answer to his questions, okay, and, and the Old Testament is a question to his answers. And so, what I mean by that is, for Paul, Paul is so convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, understandably so, because he saw him on the Damascus Road for himself in, you know, with his own eyes. He is so convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that he can go back and read these Old Testament texts in light of Jesus the Messiah. Okay. And so, again, these Old Testament texts kind of become answers to his questions about Jesus. Who is this Jesus that appeared to me? Oh, wow. This is this is all what the Old Testament has pointed us to. The Old Testament has given us this messianic profile, to quote Mike Heiser. It has given us a messianic profile. Uh, it helps us contextualize Jesus and his life and his ministry and all of his works on the earth and his crucifixion and his resurrection. It gives me categories for thinking about this person named Jesus. So the Old Testament becomes a lens through which he interprets Jesus. But it works the other way around too. The, the the Old Testament is interpreted through the lens of Jesus for Paul. And we see that here very clearly in Philippians 2 verses um, or verse 11 that he has um, interpreted the Old Testament in light of his Christological convictions. Paul Paul's hermeneutic is Christological, okay? He interprets everything through the Jesus lens. He interprets scripture through the Jesus lens. He interprets life and reality and events through the Jesus lens. And think of it here in, in the context of Philippians chapter 2. He's interpreting church life through the Jesus lens. That's why he tells the church, he says, look, don't do anything through uh, because of selfish ambition. Don't do anything uh, out of out of uh, conceit, but in humility, look to others more important as yourself, and look out for their needs. Uh, okay, and and so he's saying, after all, this is what Jesus did, and we should have the mindset of Jesus, the Messiah. And this is what I mean. Paul, all Paul is doing there is interpreting the the situation in light of Jesus. He's saying, guys. Let's interpret our disagreements in light of Jesus and and let's conform them to Jesus. Let's live out the Jesus life in these situations. In other words, what I'm saying, guys, is that Paul is an interpreter and you are an interpreter and I am an interpreter. The question is, through which lens will will we interpret things? And Paul is saying, interpret everything in light of Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, one final thing that I want to end on here. This idea of Paul's Christological interpretation of Scripture is going to be super, super important for how we understand Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to tell the Abraham story. He's going to talk about Abraham, which makes sense in light of all the stuff we've been talking about so far in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Because it was Abraham's family who was called and elected to be the light to the world. And it is Abraham's family that have failed at that vocation. Just like everybody else, all of humanity, all the Gentiles have failed at their vocation too, of you know being a, a, a people who honor God. We have not honored God. We have not acknowledged him. We have not seen fit to worship him. Instead, we've worshiped our idols, okay? But anyway, it makes sense why Paul is going to spend some time talking about Abraham because he's been he's been alluding to it all throughout. He's been talking about circumcision. He's been talking about 
uh, faith and all of that. Well, it's time to talk about Abraham. And in Romans 4, without further delay, that is what Paul is going to do. So in our next segment together, in our next time together, we're going to spend time looking at Romans 4. Now, here's what we need to do to prepare. We need to consider all that we've talked about here today. Paul is an interpreter of scripture um, in the sense that he interprets it through his Christological lens. And I think we need to spend some time really thinking about that concept because in Romans 4, Paul is going to interpret the Abraham story Christologically as well. So this is why this time together in Philippians 2 is, I think, really beneficial because it gives us some context to understanding Romans chapter 3 and it builds us a bridge to travel on into Romans chapter 4 where he talks about Abraham and where he interprets the Abraham story Christologically. So I think some homework that we can do is to come back to Philippians 2, maybe through the whole book of Philippians, the whole letter here, and think of ways and or think of, or, or let me let me say this. We should, we should read Philippians 2, read all of Philippians, and notice the ways in which Paul interprets things there Christologically. He's interpreting an event, you know, these disagreements that are happening Christologically. He wants to interpret, uh, you know, the, the life Christologically. He's interpreting Isaiah Christologically. And so just kind of get familiar with that idea. Maybe go back and read Matthew chapter 1 through 7 and, and see how um, you know, the story of Israel is being interpreted Christologically here. My point in saying is this is just think about that, you know, meditate on that, maybe pray about it too. And I mean, maybe we could be thinking about the things that we're going through in our own life today, our struggles, our, our anxieties that we're going through this week. Maybe we can start looking at our own situations through the Jesus lens. And maybe that'll, maybe that's that's good practice uh, for studying through Romans. I think it is, but it's also just healthy. It's also just really helpful to know that that um, we can we can interpret things through the Jesus lens. That we can face any obstacle through the Jesus lens, and we're much better off when we do. At any rate, those are just ways we can prepare for coming to Romans chapter four. Because for some of us, this might be a new concept of reading the text Christologically, and uh, it's going to be fascinating because Romans four, I think, will uh, will will be um, really helpful for us to get another glimpse at some of Paul's most basic pre-understandings, his most basic commitments uh, with respect to his interpretive approach to Scripture. That's the end of today's episode, and thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted, or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.